Welcome to the Storytellers Podcast. I'm your host, Lucian McCaig. Today I have the pleasure of presenting the very first episode of the podcast, which I recorded with an old lecturer of mine from Monash University, a distinguished professor of chemistry by the name of Douglas McFarlane. In this episode, Douglas and I talk about a range of things, centering around the theme of renewable technologies and sustainable energy. We talk about solar power, the current state of solar, particularly in Australia. We talk about battery technologies and the dynamic between solar power and battery technologies and new battery technologies. And we also talk about hydrogen and the hydrogen economy, hydrogen as a renewable and potentially dominant fuel source going into the future. And we also talk about ammonia, and in particular, green ammonia, and the potential that that compound has to revolutionize the way in which we store and transport sustainable energies. So this was my first podcast, and it was a lot of fun, although it was also difficult trying to balance all the moving parts and make sure that everything was recording smoothly as you can probably see and will probably notice in the video itself I was having some camera issues um, which I hope I know the cause of now and so that won't be a problem in the future and I was also quite sick at the time with an infection that I suspected might have been COVID, but wasn't COVID. I ended up getting COVID a week later, but it meant that I was quite under the weather and not at my best in terms of talking or thinking. So that may have played a part in the way that things went, and I hope it didn't affect it too adversely. So without further ado... I give you Douglas McFarlane. Okay, so today I have the pleasure of talking to Douglas McFarlane. So Douglas is a Sir John Monash Distinguished Professor within the Monash School of Chemistry. He has a H-index score of 121 and has been cited over 66,000 times. And for those who are not familiar with such metrics, they are quite high. (laughs) So Douglas is just about as good as it gets in the academic realm. So Douglas, thanks for joining me. Good morning, Lucien. How's it going? Very good. Good to to be able to talk with you this morning. Yeah, awesome. So we've got a few topics that I know we'd like to cover today. Um, namely in the realm of renewable technologies sort of under the guise perhaps of climate change more broadly. But before we get there, I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself and your maybe your story, your background, how you got to be and where you are today. Okay. Um, so I'm a, I'm a chemist uh, at heart, literally. Um, I, um, uh, I I sort of became fascinated by by the mysteries of chemistry way back in uh, in primary school when 
uh, I think we're around about eight or so, nine years old, my parents gave me a, a chemistry set um, for Christmas one year. And uh, uh, way back in those days, a chemistry set was a serious bit of kit, um, you know, equipment and chemicals that kids would never be allowed to play with today. Uh, not, not just one of those, not just one of those connector kits, something a bit more. Something a bit more elaborate, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so over the ensuing sort of primary school and early high school years, um, there were fires and floods and so on, all of which, of course, increased the, uh, the, 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 my, mission, the, my um, uh, enthusiasm for the mysteries of chemistry, so to speak. And uh, so literally from, from then on, I've always wanted to, to be involved in the world of chemistry. Um, mm. So then through university years and, and early academic years, I, I sort of realized that kind of where, where my interest uh, most strongly lay um, and sort of passion for solving some of the world's um, uh, energy problems using novel chemistry. And, and when you ask, well, how does that sort of, how do those two worlds collide? Um, it's very much in the world of, of, of electrochemistry, which um, for those who don't, don't really understand what that is, um, that's the underlying science of, of batteries and uh, electrolyzers that make hydrogen and more recently ammonia. Um, and all of that is a is a is a, a realm of of materials chemistry that uh, these are materials that do um, significant reactions as soon as you start to drive current through them, and that's where we are today. So we're we're continuing to make new new steps forward in in uh, new technologies that are based on on new materials that that fit inside these devices. The technologies of the of the future, in a sense. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> well, it's. Interesting to hear that you had that passion um, and desire from chemi for chemistry from such an early age because it's you know it's not something that many people have at university as I'm sure that you've noticed during your time there as lecturers that sort of single-minded direction and self-awareness um, in that sense and I'm sure that's contributed to your success in the field having that passion. Indeed, there's, there's always a few that come through every every year that uh, that have that passion in in one branch of chemistry or the other. I mean, chemistry spans all the way from de developing new um, new medicinal chemicals and materials to um, to uh, the sorts of things that we do. And I was talking to a senior student just the other day who who I had without having talked to her before, I suddenly realised that uh, she really did have that that um, passion and, and never really been perhaps ready to um, to announce it to the world, so to speak, which is just okay. So I encouraged her to, to, to think that what she um, had always wanted to do was, was totally, totally uh, fine and, and totally possible. And, uh, and I think so that then she, uh, hopefully she can move forward in her career um, with, with huge confidence. Yeah. Well, it's something that, um, you know, chemistry is not an easy subject um, and it's quite niche and you really have to focus and hone in on it. So unless you're, you have that passion, I think that make, it can be quite a hard thing to do from my own experience as well. I've, you know, I, I, I very much enjoyed chemistry but, uh, and I found it very fascinating for all kinds of reasons, which probably won't bother getting into, but for, to drag because drag things on too much, maybe. But um, uh, though I sort of knew I didn't have the passion for it to complete it at, or engage with it at the level of employment or career, um, I always found it something worth 
worth doing, but knew, you know, could see that the, the, the people around me that really succeeded, um, and did well were the ones that, that was just, that was them. They knew that. Absolutely. Um, and it, it chemistry is a, a, an interesting mix of, of relatively, um, well understood and hardcore physics and mathematics, which of course is challenging for a certain a certain kind of brain, so to speak. Who um, mm. so some some parts of chemistry, there are people, uh, and this is more me who 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 work well in that realm and and feel comfortable with it. And then there's the uh, another half of chemistry where people are much more much more on the soft side, sort of soft science sort of brain, um, mm. where they they totally excel at the inspiration, if you like, of, of how to stitch things together in such a way to make a new molecule. And then, and then the, the, mm. the, um, the, um, the feeling of success that comes from actually making that molecule, doing the chemistry, doing the cookery to some people that would look like cookery. That's fine. It, to some extent it is like cookery. Most chemists are very good cooks, by the way. I'm always suspicious <laughs> of a chemist. You have to be, you have to cook. be precise with your, with your, that's recipe right. don't, don't you with your reagents oh, you do that's right you have to even understand why the ingredients have to be mixed in certain um in certain ratios you see so that's where the precision is necessary um but once you've done that um that putting things together in that sort of cookery sense um mm-hmm. the 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 buzz you get out of actually showing that you actually did make this 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 molecule that you wanted to make in the first place maybe it never been made before and we have all the tools to really probe that at the at the atomic level, that mm. is, that's huge. And, and so that's a different, that's a different side of the brain, a different side of chemistry. Oh, for sure. No, I certainly noticed that the sort of the more literal, um, fundamental and mathematical side versus more the abstract, maybe conceptual type side of um, chemistry. I certainly noticed that distinction and found myself leaning towards um, the more conceptual side of things, I think. So that's all. There's that's a that's a whole conversation in and of itself. That um, those topics are there and the, the the fascinating aspects of chemistry and physical science itself, and that's um, a conversation that I think we'll have um, at another time, something along those lines. But maybe now we can get into the renewable side of things. Get into and. To do that, perhaps we can start talking about talking about solar power. Solar power has been around for quite some time now, and has I think it's safe to say that it's been off, largely considered as the kind of the golden child of renewables, at least in Australia, in terms of what it has to offer and its potential, and perhaps its um, and its scalability and you know it has it has its fair amount of criticisms and um praise so i was wondering if you could tell us a bit about where solar power is at at this point in time um how it's how it's developed and what it's sort of currently looking like perhaps in a broad sense but then also maybe in a, in australia as well yeah um so, so if you if you look back over the over the last couple of decades in terms of how that technology has developed, uh, um, and it certainly has, in, in particular, I mean, I mean the, the solar cells that people um, might have installed on the roofs even even ten or fifteen years ago um, don't look very different to the ones that we're installing today. Um, so the main thing that's really happened is that the 
the price per unit of performance. In other words, you know, what you pay for a, for a kilowatt of generating capacity on your roof has definitely, the price has come down quite a lot and made it more and more accessible to more and more people um, and made the economics of it more and more, more and more sort of a, a no-brainer um, in many parts of the world um, and especially in Australia where, where we have exceptional, exceptional solar capacity, so, so to speak. So as, as most people know, I mean, that's, a, that's becoming a, uh, a regular, uh, something we see regularly around our suburbs um, all over Australia and mm. certain parts of the world. Um, what's really emerging at the moment is, is the potential for huge solar farm type activities that would power either you know, generate huge amounts of, of solar in, into, the, uh, into the, the grids, into the local grids, um, and or um, generating um, power or of various sorts for, um, for special industrial activity. So, so go back to the point then that, um, yeah, all over Australia, there are potential for um, major solar farm uh, type um, installations going in, and they really are uh, starting to to pop up in most states. Um, and so this is kind of where we're headed is for more and more of these to be supplying um, bigger and bigger fraction of our of our grid um, electricity. Um, Supplemented by wind. I mean, as, as we all know, and again, certain parts of, of Australia, there's uh, major wind farm activity going in, and uh, and those two complement each other in many cases. Um, mm-hmm. So that then brings up the other the other issue with with the, with this whole um, development towards the future is that there is uh, at certain points of time too much wind or solar going into the the grid, and um, um, so the um, there, there's a need, if you like, to try to kind of stabilize this uh, this, this 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 power um, um, productivity, um, so that we can shift the supply to match demand. You know, the, the peak demand is typically in the in the middle of the afternoon on a hot day with air conditioning, mm-hmm. etc. Um, and then later in the in the early evening, when everybody's sort of switching on their 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 ovens and their uh, their air conditioners once again at home, um, and uh, and TVs and so on, and th- these these peak demand periods are relatively short, and the outcome of of that kind of peakiness of the of the demand is that uh, in this renewables area, there is need for for energy storage of some sort, and mm-hmm. the answer to that. Of is probably um, meaning that there was more than one answer, but the, the best answer is probably batteries, big batteries, mm. either in the home, battery tech, um, uh, or uh, literally in, in in separate installations, often quite close to to a, a big solar or wind farm. Um, mm. But it doesn't really matter where it is, as long as it's attached to the grid and can soak up some power at times, and then give it back at the at those, those moments, those half hours where there's a need for it. Sure, sure. Um, in fact, there's there's a couple of different solar um, technologies around. Um, and, and in fact, to, to answer this question, I need to um, immediately specify that we're we, we are talking here and in, uh, in this conversation right now about photovoltaic devices. That's the more mm-hmm. technical name for them, because there are other, uh, and maybe I'll even mention briefly other 
other kinds of solar technologies. Anyway, so with photovoltaics, um, once again, there's two kinds. And I, I often refer to these simply as the physicist version and the chemist version. So keeping that sort of amusing distinction in mind, what, what most of us know of is the, mm. is the physicist version, which is the solar material itself um, under the, the, the outer glass surface of the, of the device that you see. Um, is, is basically just one big piece of, of semiconductor, usually silicon. Um, and uh, in a semiconductor uh, like this that is exposed to, to light, we get a, uh, effectively the, 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 the light, which is made up of, of individual little packets of energy called photons, um, mm-hmm. uh, rain down on, the, on the, the, the electrons in the semiconductor and basically boost their energy, give them a, a, a kick of energy, which moves them into a, a different state in the, um, in the semiconductor, which makes them very conductive. So suddenly, suddenly mm-hmm. we have electrons which are, which are like electrons in a copper wire coming down the, 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 the cables into our houses. Um, they, have, they have that energy that's come from those photons that came from the sun. And, um, and all we need to do basically is to connect the the solar cell up sort of plus and minus uh, the minus is the the minus is where the electrons are the plus is sort of the the back plane and um and, and what we will find is um, um uh, something around about a volt or a little bit less of so the individual voltages that are generated aren't very high um so we have to kind of connect it up in series like a whole lot of batteries in series um but depending on how much solar light is in, is is uh, raining down so the intensity of the sunlight will get a will get current um, mm. so so it's actually a relatively simple device but but making the semiconductor and making it um, sort of pure enough to do all of this really well is quite a, a serious technology um, to do that and has and have these um, semiconductors improved in their in efficiency or in productivity much over the past decade or so in terms of how much power you get per let's say exposure to level unit of exposure to uv radiation yes um there is sort of a theoretical limit that uh, that you can that the physicists can work out as to how much um how efficiently you can convert one photon to to one electron um and and the the improvements in the materials this is back to materials chemistry and materials physics have been progressively getting closer and closer to those to those fundamental limits of efficiency okay so we're close to a point of of limit effectively where we just can't go any further that's right there's a bit it's a bit that could be improved um so that that has that's continuing area of research shall we say and and of course the price uh you know doing all of that at a at a reasonable price is the other part of the story so in fact if you go into the solar cell market to put a uh, to buy some to put on your roof, you'll find that there's quite a, um, a price performance trade-off that uh, that is mm. available. Shall we say there are cheaper solar cells mm-hmm. that just don't work quite as well, um, or are bigger in area for what they can do, um, or uh, and, and then there's some really high-performance ones that are that are smaller and um, and and more productive, so uh, but more expensive as a result. Mm. Do you think, or do you have any any idea of the? say a time frame between now and reaching that that theoretical limit um in product uh, that's an interesting question because it, it very much depends on on cost i think i think the, the you know in the lab the physicists are quite close to some of those limits but turning it into a 
Um, we're, we're not so far away that that's something that's worth holding on for, so to speak, um, uh, because it's it's always a, a price. It's it's it performance per unit a price. It's what is everyone's. So whether whether you can uh, ultimately buy one that is operating at that at that limit uh, is going to be a question of whether you're prepared to pay for it, so to speak, uh, and whether that's worth it as well yeah yeah just because it's great doesn't mean necessarily it can do that thing very well doesn't mean it's actually yeah, yeah worth the worth yeah. the effort in a sense that's right and and there's always this extra um uh, how, how you could have put it um um variable here which you can which you can just uh, apply to the situation which is just bigger area right if you've got mm-hmm. plenty of space plenty of roof space or if you're putting in a big solar farm just a little plenty of of land um, you, you you could just make a bigger a lot of the solar cell to be bigger, twenty percent mm. bigger, for example, um, uh, to get, get the those same gains. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, we have a lot of room here in Australia, but often that room is quite far away from anyone and um, anything, and so that brings in the issue of transport of electricity. <clears throat> so either just directly grid transporting that electricity and through over long um long distances when you encounter um well encounter issues like resistance and whatnot i'm sure and or and if you're not doing that then you have to rely on something else which is storage which is batteries so maybe now we can get into batteries a little bit because batteries have been an almost i think Batteries and lithium-ion batteries and the idea of batteries have been certainly popularized, I think, quite a lot by Elon Musk um, um, through Tesla. Um, that's brought that sort of brought the idea of, <clears throat> you know, with his Tesla wall um, battery, also the batteries that is um, he put, puts within the Teslas themselves. And so, lith- and now lithium-ion has kind of been the standard battery or and the, and the phrase that's thrown around and what people often think about when they think of good batteries these days so maybe we could talk about where battery technology is at the moment and it's it's capacity to perform as we need it say with these very large solar pla- um, solar plants the, the economic viability and perhaps what comes next after lithium ion yeah so, so lithium-ion batteries is—it's a relatively well-developed technology at this point. It's—it's not—it's not an ancient technology. It's not like uh, lead-acid batteries, which uh, mm. which are also an option for for maybe not grid storage because it would be so huge, but certainly for domestic storage. Um, um, a, lot of, a lot of people who are off-grid have been forever, and um, and what they what they would often have installed since you know uh, a long time ago would have been just a big bank of of lead-acid batteries, basically very similar to to car batteries. Um, I think uh, um, quick point there. Uh, my, my intuition is that telling a, telling someone to put a very large even though you might say, okay, put this really large lithium-ion battery in your house and think, oh, that's fine, okay, cool. Put a very large lead-acid battery in your house and they might say, oh, I don't know about that. And perhaps purely just because you have the words lead and acid in there, um, it's something that I've sort of noticed or come across, um, perhaps in particular with my association with chemistry, is these particular words can really be... Um, 
really have an effect on people's perceptions. Like maybe a salient current example at the moment is with the coronavirus, with the, the spike protein. You know, the fact that it's called spike and, and protein, you know, this sort of semi-vague um, chemical term molecule, I think, really hits on people's um, uh, perceptions a little bit and perhaps a little bit more negatively than it would have otherwise if it was called, say, the... Um, you know the soft, the soft protein, or the uh, the rainbow protein, or, or whatnot. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. With so so lead. Anyway, going back to that. So lead acid is still actually quite. They are still actually quite good batteries, um, and viable for certain applications like that. Yes, indeed. And in fact, it's an interesting. Uh, there's an irony in what you were just saying. In that, um, although it, the, those two words are mostly familiar to to the general public and mostly you know have raised some concerns actually the lead acid battery so so we should find another name for it um is is probably a lot safer um depends on how you evaluate the safety of course than than the lithium-ion battery especially in the home and certainly really? there was a certain point that um lithium-ion batteries were uh, the um, fire regulations uh, tended to want to see a lithium-ion battery installed in some sort of um, outside enclosure um, mm. for the fire risk so there's one thing that a lead acid battery will never do which is which is catch fire whereas a lithium-ion as you as many people will know there's definitely a, an intrinsic um, sort of this this battery can heat itself up to the point that it effectively kind of explodes into fire um, and there's plenty of examples of, of that. There was the issue of two or three or four years ago around Christmas time with the little hoverboard um, sort of toy skateboard things yes, that were being yes, sold where the, where the batteries were mm. just not stable. Um, so the, the point is that there are flammable materials in there. And uh, if something else is wrong in the battery, then it can all go wrong quite quickly. And one battery can, can destroy the whole bunch, so to speak. That's been the stigma with, um, or part of this, perhaps the stigma with like, electric cars. I think maybe for some quite some time is, well, they they'll blow up and they will incinerate you, and they're no good. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's it. And the uh, and the and the, the the fireys when they turn up to such an accident uh, are very wary because these batteries keep exploding, keep popping off like firecrackers, dangerous firecrackers, um, for <laughs> hours after uh, you know such an accident mm. and. Uh, um, uh, it's, it's virtually impossible to put them out. Um, the, 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 the point there is, it's not just one big battery. It's a, it's a, it's a big box, if you like, of lots of relatively standard sized cells. And they're a little bit bigger than a, um, a double a battery, but not, not as big as a, a D sized battery. And there's just hundreds of those. So uh, one of those going off uh, is usually enough to set off the ones next door to it. And then it's mm. all on and they keep popping. Um, so, so quite a, quite a challenge from the, from the point of view of fire management, uh, to have one yeah, of those. Okay. Well, that's off. interesting to know. I'm not sure if actually people were aware of that distinction between, of, of safety and danger between lead acid and, um, lithium ion. Yeah. And so beyond perhaps, well, maybe we should just say, how how good are lithium ion batteries these days? What is their potential to capture, so um, and store, and effectively make these you know very large solar plants 
viable, um, uh, useful. You know, I know that South Australia has very recently, with the help of Musk um, and I think Mike Cannon Brooks, developed their uh, very large battery um, battery farm. Are you familiar with um, very familiar with that and yep. sort of um, the there have been a number of those, in fact, uh, going around that's, the country, that's including, in fact, most recently uh, in, uh, here in Victoria, down uh, near Geelong. And there was a in the in the installation phase and in the warm up phase, there was a fire in one of those units, uh, one of the units that make up the whole big farm. Um, anyway, that's that's been dealt with, and I think we're we're beyond we're over that now, so to speak. So, so there've been um, a number of of these big um, solar backup batteries put in in in, in various states. Um, and I, I think are, are now doing their job r- relatively well. So they're, they're, they're definitely performing mm. to, to the <clears throat> original plan. Um, and in terms of, of, of how well they do their job, it's, um, and, and how you would compare them with other battery technologies, it's a little bit a matter of, well, there's, there's, the, there's the price metric. Um, so mm-hmm. how much storage do you get for, for a dollar or more, more like a million dollars? Um, and, and how big is the thing? And then very importantly, in the, in the Australian context, um, how, how does it respond to variations in, in outside temperature? So mm-hmm. most battery technologies don't like getting hot. That's true for our, our car batteries. Um, so uh, mm-hmm. a, a traditional battery um, person would, um, um, in, in, you know, in a, uh, an automotive electric shop, for example, would, would tell you that um, winter is when you notice the damage that summer did to your car battery. Um, because mm-hmm. it's sitting under and running under the under the bonnet, uh, quite hot on a hot day, and and just the the, the materials start to break down. Um, so temp- outside temperature is quite an important factor here, and it's the same is true for for lithium batteries. They don't particularly like to get hot either, um, mm-hmm. or to run hot. So that in fact, in in all of these um, these uh, big battery installations, there are the the cabinets in which the um, the batteries are installed are usually air conditioned. Some of some of your are cooled mm. in some way. Some of your power is going into fact keeping the batteries um, mm. keep, uh, happy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And well, that comes into the sort of the topic of um, the F, uh, the the greenness of renewables in terms of what power they actually require from a starting point to make themselves pa- uh, functional, which is maybe something we can get into a little bit. Um, later down the line when we also talk about the sort of economics of these technologies and the effects they have on markets and price and pricing and whatnot. So probably one other thing I should just sort of, you know, while mm. we're talking about um, uh, the, the, the broader picture of these batteries that uh, I think we're all becoming a, a lot more aware of is, is of course, just the effectively the, the ethics of, of the, the supply chain. Um, mm. The traditional batteries that are in our phones and our laptops um, most often contain cobalt in the in the mm-hmm. in the sort of bevy of materials that are in the battery. Um, cobalt's a significant component, and people have worked for years to try to get rid of it, but it's still really the the best material. Um, and of course, in um, the the uh, global origins of, of cobalt, there are usually some some conflict regions where the the industry of of mining and refining the the, the cobalt is is actually supporting um, conflict of various sorts. So it's definitely not 
um, in the long run, it's not something that we would prefer to uh, to con continue to see in these batteries, and certainly not in big batteries where the demand on the material is, mm. is huge. Maybe you could um, enlighten us as to sort of the issues with air. Well, I suppose we've just maybe covered them a little bit, but what the future of battery technology possibly is looking like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's an important topic. Um, um, perhaps the first thing to say, which I, uh, we perhaps... I, should have explained right at the beginning when we started talking about lithium-ion batteries is why lithium? You know what is uh, what is so good about lithium that it might even become sort of the source of of future geopolitical tensions? Mm. And the answer is that it is one of the uh, well, it is the lightest metal. Mm. That's just a simple fact of the periodic table. Number and it's number all, three with the hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, blah blah blah. That's if anyone right. remembers the I don't. So if you want, it, yeah. if you want, um, if you want sort of bang for, for 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 buck in terms of weight, there's nothing else quite like lithium, and it's it, it gets better in the sense that uh, it's also a, 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 a feature of the periodic table because of where it sits, number three, as you said, in the, in the right on the top corner of the periodic mm -hmm. table. Um, it's one of the most energetic metals. So it's, it's mm -hmm. highly reactive. Um, mm -hmm. People have probably seen, you know, pictures of, of people throwing bits of lithium and sodium into water. I, I used to do this in first year until they yeah. banned me from doing it. It was a bit dangerous. Um, yeah, the old uh, days of chemistry, hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, good, it's good fun. It's, so, so in terms of getting a lot of energy into a very small, light material, there's nothing quite like lithium. And therefore, mm -hmm. um, for any battery technology where you want to move that battery around in a car or a plane or a drone very important mm. future of technology mm -hmm. coming along of course um there is going to be nothing quite like lithium um and that's why it's it's always going to be important here um in terms of replacing it with something else uh, uh that might behave similarly but is going to be not quite as good um uh, sodium is has um uh, attracted a lot of attention. So sodium battery is basically very similar in, in many respects to the lithium ion battery, um, definitely coming down the, the, the pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, those will be heavier, but if you're if it's for a storage uh, grid level or even in your home, um, mm -hmm. the sodium battery, it doesn't matter if it's heavy uh, or heavier. Uh, it'll that's it's not a factor here you see so i think the this field of battery technology will start to to split into the the mobile applications where being light is is extremely important and the what we call stationary applications which is the the um, large-scale energy storage especially grid storage probably going to be sodium or or something else um, that a number of other alternatives from that part of the periodic table um, that people are looking at where where weight is not so important do you think and do you think the market and industry will have the the foresight to or perhaps this will just be simply to be decided by pricing mechanisms but to make sure that because as you said the lithium ion is well actually i'm not sure sorry did you say that the lithium ion was a more effective battery or just that it was lighter than the sodium battery it's more its storage capacity is better or um storage capacity um very similar so, okay, uh, so very similar. the 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 amount of energy that's sort of stored up in uh, in a in one atom of sodium so to speak is relatively similar to one atom of lithium mm. but it's just heavier yeah okay so 
because obviously maybe a concern there might be, well, are we utilizing or our resources as they should be utilized so that lithium is only consumed for the purposes of these smaller batteries and the sodium and this more this new sodium tech is utilized for your ground-based batteries so that you don't have suppliers um, or purchasers buying thinking oh no but that's lithium ion and i know that and maybe it's got slightly a slightly better storage capacity so i actually will continue to buy these larger batteries for my ground storage <clears throat> rather than utilizing the more let's say it's thematically um um sustainable um sodium batteries um in these instances whether that'll be incentivized i think i think that will probably end up in in pricing mechanisms um, in other words mm -hmm. lithium um, and possibly cobalt might start to price themselves out of the, the large scale market mm -hmm. where you are, you know, you are spending um, literally, I'm just getting the order of magnitude here, right? Hundreds of millions to billions of dollars um, for large scale, very large scale storage. Mm -hmm. um, so therefore, you know, saving a hundred million or so on that, if, if it, uh, if lithium is, is starting to price itself out of that market is going to be a significant factor in, in making that decision. So if you look at the price of lithium over the last five years, it has definitely been on a roller coaster ride, but generally massively upwards. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, as demand increases, that is unlikely to be um, to be reversed that trend. And therefore, the other battery technologies begin to shine underneath that, uh, that price rise. Yeah, okay, interesting. So, so we can pretty much still expect lithium ion batteries in our smaller more mobile devices where that weight is sort of at a um, weight loss is at a premium but perhaps for these larger larger ground-based tech um, something more like a sodium based uh, battery when, whenever when that comes onto the market that's right so laptop phone car uh, the ones that and maybe drones are all the ones that we will all uh, sort of come across in daily life those will be lithium for <clears> the foreseeable future mm. um but as you say ground-based um fixed storage devices could well switch to say sodium um quite quickly uh, if prices drive that way and there okay. are companies there are companies uh, and research groups including us um uh in australia uh, looking to um to 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 Develop. I think we could almost say that the technology is pretty well developed. Uh, it's just a matter of, of building up the market, getting the manufacturing going, and that's mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we're looking at doing that in Australia, and um, and getting the market sort of uh, building for those devices. Yeah. Okay. So that's something that's sort of relatively current. Then it's not just a forecasted future thing. It's sort of it's, it's all happening in in the, in the under the rug. Yeah. And then if we go back to the to sort of the other side of the battery, the battery has two electrodes, right? So we've just been talking about the, the, mm. the metal side of it. Um, the, the other side of the battery is where the cobalt is. And uh, um, the, one of the, uh, the alternate technologies that it's worth mentioning, as you said, there are, there's an iron-based um, uh, technology for the, the so-called mm. cathode of battery in place of cobalt um uh it in more in, in more detail it's called the, the lithium iron phosphate electrode mm. so there's phosphate in there as well um and because it's iron it you know the iron is 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 the most abundant uh, one of the most abundant elements and the most abundant metal and uh, um that's 
terribly uh, sort of terribly good step to get away from cobalt and towards iron. And uh, if any if anybody who's listening is is sort of looking at different uh, buying um, lithium batteries for some maybe replacing it in some device or other like a like a power tool, you will see these. Um, on the market, they often have a slightly lower voltage than than the lithium cobalt battery, um, but but it's because of the nature of that iron electrode. It's 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 okay if the voltage is a little bit lower, um, uh, usually well within the realms of the of capability of the device. Might be a tiny bit heavier, but as I say you, if you buy that, you're buying something that isn't coming from a, a, a conflicted part of the world, which is mm. uh, it's a good thing. What we should what we should get to now and. A very interesting and current or topical topic is hydrogen. Because hydrogen, it seems to me at least, is making making waves in the media at the moment, and perhaps just more in the in the tech in the tech's public world. Um, particularly with our own Twiggy Forest at the moment, who has developed his new. And people that don't know, Twiggy Forest is an Australian um, billionaire uh, iron iron mining baron who has obviously made his wealth and fortune off of mining iron in Australia, but has just developed his new Fortescue Future Industries and has committed to being um, net zero, his um, company to being net zero by 2030 and is developing a massive green hydrogen plant so maybe we can we can talk a little bit about hydrogen and um the what what this hydrogen business is what is a hydrogen its properties and sort of how is it able to act as a renewable fuel source so this um hydrogen uh concept shall we say it's it's certainly not a new one but it uh, mm. it's it's definitely um become very much more um, front and center in in the last few years, partly again out of this um, this this question about how do we deal with the with the intermittency of renewables how do we store energy um, mm-hmm. uh, time to time um, batteries are brilliant for for overnight um, short short periods of time like that, but their capacity is limited to for if you ask for a week um, and, and of course if you think about um, between seasons, for example, summer to winter, um, then the batteries just are not the answer at all. And then separately, uh, a different sort of dimension to this is, um, okay, the, the, the discussion we've, we've been having so far is, has been somewhat focused on, the, uh, on, a, on a sunshine and, uh, and wind-rich country like Australia, um, where everything we've talked about is very feasible. Um, but if you, if you ask, well, how does, the, how does the world solve its energy needs in, in very densely populated uh, regions, especially all of the, uh, the Asian countries to the north of us, where the, the population density is just so huge that the, the local ability to generate renewables is, is just not going to meet the demand. And then you come back to Australia, and, and it's, it's very um, it's sort of famously um, pointed out by, by many commentators, including including my group, that um, that the capacity for Australia to generate renewables is just immense. Um, there's a mm. there's a map that uh, that we've published um, that shows the total uh, amount of solar energy that uh, rains down on different parts of the world totally over over a year so that's averaging up night and day summer and winter for a whole a whole year 
Mm. And uh, you then it's color coded. If you look at the colors on the map where um, where this amount of energy is, is particularly intense, um, to describe it simply uh, in an audio sense, there's nowhere on this map that's quite like Australia for the total amount of energy is just massive mm. compared to, to just about anywhere else um, in the world. And uh, um, to, to, to give a, a sort of perspective on that, um, the same basic solar cell um, on a roof um, in uh, certain parts of, um, of northern Australia, especially northwestern Australia. So let's just, just take the Pilbara, some, some home in the Pilbara in the northwest of mm. Western Australia. Um, the same solar cell there can generate three times as much electricity um, in a year than, than the same solar cell somewhere in Europe. Mm. So that's the three times is the, is the sort of massive difference I'm talking about. And then if you, if you draw a little, um, a little sort of square on that map, um, uh, and ask, okay, let, let's just think about 250 kilometers by 250 kilometers as a piece of land. Um, now, we're not ever really thinking about putting solar cells over such a, um, you know, in one place. Um, but just to, to kind of uh, understand the calculation, if you, if you draw that on the map of Australia, it's a relatively insignificant little dot. Um, mm-hmm. But such a, a piece of land, 250 Ks by 250 Ks, um, can generate with solar cells can generate the, the, the whole electricity supply of the world. Mm. On that area. I remember, I remember seeing this map actually, I think in my yeah. sustainable chem course. Um, yeah. I've tried to quote it after, um, after finishing that course and have just ended up forgetting the, the sort of the, 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 um, the area size and everything. But I do remember, um, that particular concept. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's a sort of a it's a real eye opener and for anybody who's listening from from um you know uh, other parts of the world who who maybe think oh, okay that's uh, that seems like a lot of land you just talked about there um uh to put that in perspective in the australian context that amount of land is about the combined size of our three or four biggest cattle stations in australia mm. um so we are using the those quantities of land if you like for for other purposes and and in fact um, adding a bit of solar farming to to the cattle farming that goes on in some of those massive farm, those metal, <clears throat> massive cattle stations, I think would be a um, a highly desired um, sort of outcome for the for the, the cattle farmers involved because it would provide a, a very useful, steady, supplementary source of income for those farmers. Mm. So, so land utilization, I I, I think is uh, is not not a, a massive issue in this. Um, However, I haven't quite got to the problem yet. The problem, so the capacity is there. But I mean, Australia is not the only place where this could be, could be thought of. Um, but it's certainly one of the most promising parts of the world in this regard. Um, the question is, how do we move that energy um, from from where we're generating it, usually fairly remote, um, to other parts of the world where it's really needed? Um, mm-hmm. And let's leave the rest of Australia out because the rest of Australia, even locally, can probably generate, as we've said, its own renewables for local use so how do we export it is the big question um and the markets that we might first think of are the markets to the in asia to the north of us um and you 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 can string high voltage electric cables just so far so there is a a a concept of of generating um, electricity in the northern territory um and uh, across to indonesia which is not so distant and then uh, sunbeam sunbeam cable is that what it's called i think that's right that's right 
and that's mm. that's possible um but it's it's uh, stringing um, uh, electric cables over long distances eventually creates a lot of losses so the amount of, mm. of power you get out the end of the cable is not uh, quite what Resistance, you put in the yeah. beginning yeah exactly so so uh, while while jakarta and maybe singapore may be within reach uh, from the northern territory um the tokyo and beijing and uh and seoul are definitely not within reach in this regard in, in terms of electric cables from from the the really powerhouses of the western australian um northwest um so so you then start to ask is there something we can turn this electricity into um not batteries by the way because batteries are just too too massive and heavy to fill a ship full of batteries and then consider bringing them back um, to recharge. And, uh, that's, that doesn't really work, um, mm. not enough energy contained. So, so you then ask, is there some chemical um, that you can make? Um, I won't call it a fuel just yet, but let's just call it a chemical that you can make with mm -hmm. electricity. Um, and the answer is relatively well known. <clears throat> it's hydrogen made by electrolysis. So if you've got electricity, mm -hmm. um, Many, many people will have done this at some point in high school, hopefully, or, or, uh, or seen it done. Um, literally, just a couple of electrodes um, in a, at a crude level. It can be almost any material, any metals, electrode um, um, in, an, in some salty water and uh, apply power and you will form hydrogen <clears throat> at one electrode and uh, oxygen at the other electrode. You split the water molecule in half. So By using so hydrogen, with electricity, though, using electricity, electricity, energy to power that. That process. That's right. That's right. And and the energy effectively has then is then reappearing um, mostly, and not you don't get one hundred percent energy efficiency in this, but mostly appearing in the hydrogen. So it's a it's an energetic material. Um, think think the Hindenburg. It's so let's maybe let's maybe let's let's um, delve back into a few of those other points, and then we'll get back to um, and um, the the drawbacks of the hydrogen just due to its physical properties, its nature. So typically, like you said, hydrogen hasn't been, hydrogen's not an old fuel. It's not an old technology um, in, in that sense. It's been around for a while. We've been able to make hydrogen, and by hydrogen we mean diatomic hydrogen, H2, um, gaseous hydrogen. And up to this point, hydrogen has been produced predominantly by a process called gasification. Is that correct? I've got my term right there, yes. Whereby um, hydrogen is generated through the pressurization of steam and um, methane, which, which in natural gas. So now, of course, that... And so that produces this, this clean fuel that when utilized or burnt doesn't itself emit any... Um, any greenhouse gases, and so that what that's what makes hydrogen clean, in and of itself. But the problem with that production process is that, of course, it has to utilize. Well, first, it has to utilize energy, and then it has to utilize a non um, or a non-renewable resource. Um, it has to utilize a fossil a fossil fuel effectively, and so that makes. And this is a process called blue blue hydrogen, what's, what's known as blue hydrogen or something along those lines. And blue hydrogen, as we've just talked about, so that is, to summarize it, it's, it creates a clean energy, but the process of creating that clean energy isn't necessarily um, clean. And so, and then now going on to 
moving on to what you were talking about then with electrolysis, this new method by which hydrogen is created is more green. And what's what two what two um, um, compounds are required within an electrolytic cell to um, produce hydrogen again? Is it is it water and carbon dioxide? If I uh, no, no carbon needed. Uh, it's water and effectively some sort of salt um, in order yes. to make the water conductive. Um, mm. And when I say salt, everybody will think of, um, of of table salt, sodium chloride, which is mostly what seawater is as well. And yes, whenever whenever you say salt, that's what anyone think. Everyone thinks sodium and um, chloride, but chloride. technically that is a salt, but it isn't what a salt is, is it? A salt is effectively a, a metal and a and a non-metal ionically bonded together correct correct that's correct yes and in fact um i can talk more at length about this uh, maybe later or another time but uh, while seawater is immediately what everyone might think of and that would be brilliant and we're working on it but that's not as easy as it as it sounds because of the chloride um so when, when we talk about a salt being added to water to to carry out the um the water electrolysis um it's it's something other than chloride, like sodium sulfate. Um, and often mm -hmm. we change the pH as well to make it either more acidic um, to make the process easier or make it more alkaline to make it easier. So there's usually um, some acid or some alkaline in this, in this picture as well. Um, but, uh, but none of those are carbon-containing materials. And, and fossil carbon here. Yeah, so importantly, they don't, re they don't require the use of any, of any non-renewable resources, any fossil fuels. But you still need current you still need energy to make that hydrogen which along the long line of the energy trail that leads to the production of this fuel source the qu the question of well how renewable is your renewable fuel or your renewable resource you have to take its renewability or its sustainability and extract from it the non-renewable aspect that's been used to um, generate it so if you used have you used coal power to um, to perform that electrolysis or have you used solar? And that's where solar solves, or something like solar solves that issue of making green hydrogen, perfectly green, perfectly sustainable hydrogen, which is which is what we're which is what we're looking forward, look, looking at going into the future. You see the word green hydrogen, um, the term, the phrase green hydrogen has become much more prominent just in um, media, news sources, articles. And there's this distinction has been more publicly made now between blue and, um, and green hydrogen. And so something that I've wondered, though, is how, how easy is it to make green hydrogen um, at the moment? How cost-effective? Because all of innovation and progress is very often decided, or the rate of it, by the economics of it. Um, and so... We at a point now where green hydrogen is just as feasible as blue hydrogen, or is blue hydrogen still cheaper, still easier, and is still going to be a let's a predominant source of hydrogen production in the near for the near future? Future, or can we see um, green hydrogen taking those reins? Right, uh, that's that's quite a. That's quite a big and complex uh, yeah. uh, uh, question. Let, let's try and tackle that. So let, let, let me make a couple of comments, first of all, about those colors, um, which um, mm. are very important, but uh, could easily confuse. Um, mm. the, 
uh, was obviously the gas, we're talking about the same gas, the hydrogen, which is yeah, colorless. Yeah, it's all hydrogen uh, at the end of the day. It's just how you got it. That's right. That's right. But we're, we're, we're trying to refer to the way that it's been made and its possible um, sort of impact, if you like, on, on climate change. Um, mm. And in fact, the range of colors that are described here are, are even greater than the ones we've just mentioned. So, so when we use, so the traditional method, as we started off talking about here, when we use a fossil fuel, whether it's uh, natural gas or coal, um, which is actually quite quite an important source of hydrogen. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, as, as Lucien said a minute ago, we um, uh, uh, carry out a chemical reaction which produces the hydrogen, but leaves the, um, the, the carbon uh, which is in the, the, that fossil fuel um, as CO2, which is vented to the atmosphere. If that's what's going on, and that is the traditional approach, mm -hmm. that's actually black hydrogen it's as it's as mm -hmm. much a fossil fuel as as the fossil fuel that we started with because we've still emitted the co2 mm -hmm. um i'll come back to that in a moment so then there's blue hydrogen is uh, is is in reference to the idea well okay let's just do that but let's be let's be smart about it and capture the carbon um carbon dioxide and and uh, sequester it underground so that's carbon capture and sequestration is a part of that blue hydrogen it's mm, necessary okay carbon be sequestered for it to be to be considered blue okay. um, meaning somewhat better than than black hydrogen but it's uh, it's still still got a um, a fossil fuel source and we need to do we're trying to deal with the carbon in some way and mm -hmm. and that brings up all of the questions about uh, about the uh, how smart is it to to sequester carbon in some underground way is this a good smart idea uh, is it expensive mm -hmm. uh, etc um, and then if we take a big leap then to the totally renewably powered, as, as, uh, as you just said, uh, just explained, powered way to make hydrogen from renewable electricity, that makes it green because there's no carbon anywhere in that picture. Um, so, and if I go back then to, to, to black and blue, one of the, the, the Victoria for the, at the moment is exporting small quantities of hydrogen um, to, to Japan. In principle, it's blue hydrogen because, in principle, the carbon is being captured and uh, and stored, mm -hmm. um, stored underground. Um, one of the interesting things about about that whole black and blue picture is that the responsibility, if you like, for dealing with the carbon and measuring it and including it in our national um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which are of course so very topical, COP twenty six. Put mm -hmm. a big focus on on mm -hmm. those emissions. What where we are headed with our global, uh, sorry, national emissions all over the world. Um, recently, um, so the the carbon that that is evolved from making hydrogen and shipping out, therefore, what is what appears to be a green fuel when it gets to Tokyo. Um, it didn't start off being a green fuel and, and the carbon that is, is emitted becomes the responsibility of the country that produced it. So mm. what sort of happened there is we've, we've allowed ourselves, shall we say, um, to shift the emission from, from the user to the producer. Yes, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's important to have, be very, have our eyes very wide open to this. Um, so the more that uh, Australia, for example, or any country considers making hydrogen this way and then shipping it out to a place <coughs> where, where ultimately we're helping them become green because they're using a fuel locally, which doesn't produce any carbon. But back there... At our own expense, in a sense. It's at our expense, yeah. So... 
and, and in principle, the blue hydrogen approach, the carbon capture and sequestration element of, of that concept is it removes the emissions problem, but it does uh, raise big questions, both, I think, politically and environmentally about whether carbon capture and sequestration ultimately at large scale is a, is a good thing to do. Um, whether whether it be for Australia or for the world, uh, so to speak, and how viable um, carbon capture technology or ca- as a process, carbon capture and storage is. It really is. That's right. Mm. So, c- quite a quite a complex issue, so to speak. So, so that's kind of very current. Um, mm. That shift from black to blue and then to green. And now to green. From. You you asked the question how how uh, expensive is green hydrogen compared to, to blue? Blue isn't so commonplace because the the cost of carbon capture and sequestration is hard to kind of get a to, to pinpoint. Okay. Um, but if you compare it to black, so just take that old versus uh, historical versus. What, okay, know, so my up. understanding was, is talking about blue. I, <clears throat> I think I was more referring to black. Actually, um, where the the fossil fuels that are consumed and then produ- are produced within that process are just released, flue gas um, kind of thing, They're not captured and um, stored and then restored. But that is a, so that is a fundamental technical part part of blue hydrogen is that capture and storage again. Yes, yeah. So, so the the sad answer is that um, black hydrogen is um, is traditionally quite a lot cheaper to make than mm-hmm. is than, than green hydrogen. Um, however, if you ask, well, what are the fundamental fundamental economics of those two things? On one hand, um, let's talk about black hydrogen. If it's if it's made from natural gas, which is sort of the the best process, well, <laughs> the price of natural gas has been going through the roof in recent times, mm-hmm. and and geopolitical things that are happening around us, you know, literally this morning, are probably going to drive those prices even higher. So that's that that fundamental cost base is on the move, shall we say, um, for hydrogen, for black hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, coal, well, um, of course, coal uh, does have a, a very fundamentally inexpensive price. I mean, Victorian brown coal, which is how the um, apparently blue hydrogen that we're making and shipping out of Australia at the moment um, is, is being made, of course, can be produced at a very, very low cost. Uh, and that cost is, is, is fairly stable, shall we say, uh, the supply cost of that. So that's the problem. The problem, if you like, on, on, in regard to most of the, the, the shift to renewables is this terribly low base price of many fossil fuels, especially coal. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, so uh, if if we were to compare the price of producing uh, hydrogen, um, even blue hydrogen, that's allowing for the cost of capturing the carbon and, and putting it underground. Um, it's still cheaper than than the what you might call the average cost of green hydrogen. But green hydrogen, right, mm. depends on the cost of electricity. Mm-hmm. Right? And the cost of electricity is. Uh, is is terribly variable because of the supply of renewables Personal in the power plant. Uh, sorry, the solar plant. So to what the, the point I'm trying to make is that unless you have your own. Correct. Or a different concept says, well, if you can afford to have your your hydrogen plant sort of somewhat 
um, varying up and down. It's like sort of pressing the accelerator hard and then and then and then idling. Um, except it's the reverse. We're we're either opening up the the generator fully or we're letting it idle according to the price of power. Then then the hydrogen production could be um, effectively soaking up excess renewables. And okay. the wind is. When the wind, mm-hmm. when the wind, the wind is belting along in the, at three o'clock in the morning, our hydrogen um, electrolysis cells could be could be running at full tilt. But at six o'clock in the evening, when everybody's turning their their air conditioners on, it idles down to nothing, or to almost nothing, not quite nothing, but nothing. so so then the, the the price of power that is going into the uh, hydrogen cells could be on average much lower because the, n- nobody else wants it. Okay, and without overly overtly affecting the price of power for everyone else within. Well, it might actually assist the price of power for everybody else because it would encourage more installation of of wind and solar. Mm. Interesting. Okay, and so now moving on to hydrogen as as the fuel source itself, as we as you briefly mentioned, there are some issues with <clears throat> with our, with hydrogen. Um, and with its, uh, what at what points it is also uh, how it is most effectively used and how it is where is most productive. So whether it's <clears throat> whether it's in a gaseous form, um, so it's ca- effectively it's ca- firstly it's calorific value depending on sort of what state it's in, whether it's in this sort of supercritical type state or whether it's in a gaseous state or if you a solid state kind of thing, but then also how you transport it. So there was a within my um, sustainable chem class, there was a very um, um, gripping picture that uh, I think Yasha um, um, gave us, and that was a picture of a of, of a fuel tanker over here that was this size, you know, carrying just regular fuel, and then a hydrogen tanker over here that was like this size trying to carry the equivalent calorific value energy value of hydrogen and that's because it's not nearly as dense as um, these other fuels and takes up so much more space and so it has to be um, that has to be contended with and and pressurized that's right that's um that that's the the issue with hydrogen is that while it is it packs a lot of energy per unit of, of, of weight. So per kilogram, it's, uh, mm. it's, it's very, very, very attractive. And that is precisely why it's used in, in rockets because you have to lift all that fuel off the ground um, uh, initially and, uh, and there's nothing quite like it. Um, but, but in terms of volume, it's very, very much a matter of, well, uh, most of the, the time that we would use hydrogen, it's in its gaseous state, and then it mm. fills a very large space, shall we say, at room temperature. Mm. Um, now, now, that's not completely a problem, uh, you know, a killer problem. The, the Toyota Mirai that I mentioned, uh, the, I had a chance to drive one of those um, uh, recently mm. when, when Toyota had one of these in, in Melbourne. And um, the, the, there's a, a tank in the, in the back of the car that is, it's bigger than a, than a gas tank in, a, in an LPG or a CNG car, if anybody knows what those tanks look like. Um, so it's not, it's not sort of dominating the, 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 the space of the car. Um, it's out of a fairly impressive pressure. I think it's, it's 350 bar, 350 atmospheres of pressure in that tank. 
to to give the car a range of maybe I think a, a sort of a typical fuel tank range, um, six or seven hundred kilometers probably, and otherwise I can say it's it's a very very nice car and I, it was absolutely a, um, a a joy to drive. It's sort of like driving an electric car. You wouldn't know that it was running on a on a on hydrogen and on a, a fuel cell. Not until you look for a place to fill up. <laughs> uh, but when yeah. you do fill up, if, if if the infrastructure is there, then the fill up is much quicker and uh, and more kind of traditional almost than filling up uh, than charging an electric car um so 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 you might say that as a fuel all of that is tolerable um if everything else um so all that infrastructure of, of getting the hydrogen to to the fill station is is available um and uh, and there's, there's virtually no penalty in driving the car in fact it's, it's a great drive and how does that fuel cell work within within the car is that um it's not like you said that's not the direct so combustion of hydrogen, it's the conversion of hydrogen into electricity, effectively. Co- correct. Um, so the, since we've talked about a lot of these devices today, so uh, the, the, perhaps I should start by describing a fuel cell as being almost the opposite of our, um, of our water electrolysis cell. So, so in every respect, it's a very similar looking device. It has two electrodes. It has an electrolyte in between. Um, and, and whereas our water electrolysis cell consumes current to produce hydrogen and oxygen, the fuel cell does the exact opposite. It looks very similar. It takes in hydrogen. It takes in air with the oxygen in the air and, um, and on the appropriate sort of catalyst on the, uh, on the electrodes regenerates the electricity that we kind of started with uh, so it, it, in a sense the electrolysis cell and the fuel cell as, a, as partners uh, make up something that in a, in a box together would look externally very much like a battery you put it mm. in one moment you put electricity in somewhere in this box you've got to store the hydrogen that's produced but that's you know perfectly feasible and then later you resupply the hydrogen to this cell or to a different cell in the box and out comes the electricity again. So mm. in, a, in a big box, it would look like a big battery. But, uh, so, so, that's the, so the fuel cell is, a, is the reverse uh, process of the electrolysis cell. Yeah, okay. And so where, where are we, um, <clears throat> do you think, in terms of hydrogen becoming a more commonly used fuel source for whether it be for cars um, or for um, electricity production more generally or just with, in other uses in, um, and the infrastructure surrounding that in, um, <clears throat> in general? The answer to that question a little bit depends on, on which part of the world we're thinking about. I think in, uh, in most parts of Australia, I think... Um, a lot of our daily energy use is going to be um, supplied by renewable electricity, battery storage. Um, we, we've got the capacity to generate all this energy if we can store enough of it to sort of smooth our, our supply and demand so they equal each other. The hydro storage is a huge part of that, of that picture as well. So that mm. description of hydro as being a, 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 you know, a big battery is, 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 quite, is quite, quite a sensible one. Um, so I think in Australia, largely, we're probably going to end up with, um, with uh, maybe a very electric uh, mm. um, sort of uh, country, shall we say. Um, 
However, so, so hydrogen might have a small part to play in that, maybe for industry, for example, um, uh, and so on. But it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to use electricity to make hydrogen and then use the hydrogen to make electricity in that sense, does it? Correct, correct, because there is a penalty in that. By the time mm. you've done all of that, by the time you've made the, the hydrogen and then regenerated it, the, sorry, regenerated the electricity again in the fuel cell, mm. the en- comparing energy out compared to what you put in, in round numbers, probably only getting about a half back of the energy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The rest of it is, is, is gone, if you like, in the processing. So that's, you're not going to do that unless you really, you really need to store that hydrogen in the middle. Uh, right perfectly sensible concept for example for remote area for for mines and remote farms and so on um huge capacity to generate energy huge need for energy think Mm. of those big mining trucks um you're not going to run a mining truck on electricity (laughs) very readily they're just so massive and the amount of energy Mm. needed to pull uh, to pull that massive weight of, of 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 ore up the hill so to speak um so so, you know, a hydrogen is one of the options then for generating what you might call a, a renewable fuel that can be generated on site and mm. delivered into to the truck. All, all of that is sort of starting to happen. Um, and I think one of the reasons that um, that companies such as Fortescue are very interested in, in, in all of this is because they can turn their mining operations completely green. At the moment, mm. they use a lot of diesel for all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that diesel could be displaced by it could be displaced by hydrogen or something else that we haven't talked about yet. But, uh, but so, um, but you really run into this roadblock with hydrogen when you think about how to, to utilize the massive capacity Australia has to generate mm. the hydrogen and the massive demand there is in, 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 in Asia. How do you get it there is the question. And then you run into a roadblock because the the ships that would need to carry this hydrogen just to to do so efficiently even remotely mm-hmm. efficiently uh, um we have to liquefy the hydrogen so mm-hmm. we're 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 very used to to shipping out liquid natural liquefied natural gas lng and most people will kind of imagine those those ships with the big bulbous um spheres on them is one form of lng carrier um the hydrogen unfortunately is even harder to liquefy at low temperature than than natural gas so a lot more cooling required so it's about you have to cool the gas down to about minus 250 degrees c so, so, mm. so terribly is, terribly terribly cold, cold and hard yeah. to at scale yes 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 huge infrastructure required and you effectively never get that energy back in any sense so i haven't said how much energy is required to do that about one third of the original energy content of the hydrogen so you've mm. made your hydrogen but then you use about a third of its energy value just to keep it stored it yeah uh, exactly what to get it there in the first place and then you, then you have to keep it and it has to it has to stay be consistent and stable correct correct so so by the time you you look at the round trip energy from electrical energy in to probably the electrical energy driven to the wheels in the in the in that car in in, in Toyota right in in Tokyo um oh i think you've you've probably lost uh, upwards of two thirds of the energy uh, mm. just in making it and getting it there and turning it back into electricity so that very strongly reduces its viability as an as a renewable energy source that's right and increases its effective cost that's right. Exactly. So by the time you deliver it to the car in, in Tokyo, the cost of it is, is considerably higher than, uh, than mm. other 
or concepts, shall we say. So there's the roadblock. Yeah, and that um and that brings us to the thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is nitrogen and the idea of the nitrogen economy and perhaps more specifically within that ammonia um i'm sure we often all most of us are familiar with ammonia um in some sense through its various um applications but what maybe some not everyone is aware of is that ammonia contains hydrogen and it contains a fair bit of hydrogen it's it's in terms of its molecular weight or its molecular mass it is still mostly nitrogen but it is also very much hydrogen in that sense for one unit of nitrogen for three units of hydrogen and so that makes it a very good carrier of of hydrogen so maybe you could um, take us down that path that's interesting and quite novel novel path i think um, certainly. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the idea of using ammonia has sort of appeared in, in, uh, developed in two steps. And this is very recent, I should say, if anybody's listening, who's certainly heard about the hydrogen economy for almost a generation or two of, of, uh, of, um, uh, history. Um, ammonia is, is, is appeared on this scene almost literally in the last five or six or seven years. Um, so, so ammonia crops up here as the. There we go. That's for people, what I was talking about. <clears throat> ammonia, nice, nicely hydrogen filled there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, ammonia has cropped up as a solution to that roadblock that we we, we suddenly ran into a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you have hydrogen, so here's how the story runs. If you've got hydrogen, green hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a very well-known uh, process that we all rely on, um, in fact, in making fertilizers to make our food, um, which uh, combines hydrogen and nitrogen from the air around us. The air around us is 80% nitrogen, which is very inert, and, and uh, our bodies just um, just uh, ignore it, so to speak. Um, but there's a lot of it around us. Um, mm-hmm. So the very famous uh, process called the Haber-Bosch process, developed mm-hmm. 100 years ago or so. Changed the world, didn't it? Change the world. Change the world in terms of feeding the world. Absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, takes hydrogen, which traditionally is made from fossil fuels, as we spoke about. It's black hydrogen mm-hmm. uh, in, in, the, in the normal sense, which produces the outcome, the very inconvenient truth outcome for all of us, that our food, which is most of our food in the Western world, is made from, from uh, fertilized fields, um, fertilized with industrial fertilizers, which comes from the Haber-Bosch plant which uses black hydrogen. So our food is a fossil fuel product, mm. not, a, not a nice outcome, right? But that can be changed if you follow the still, logic. Is it still organic at that point, is it? <laughs> um, well, it depends how you view the word organic. Yeah, um, what, is, what does organic mean these days? Yeah, What exactly. does organic mean these days? So it's certainly not sustainable. Mm. If we ran out of fossil fuels today, we would suddenly be running out of food at the same time. That's the way to look at it sustainably. Um, yeah, that's a that's quite a um, under the rug point. I think I'm not sure that that's well recognised or known. That's probably that whole picture uh, is probably for another conversation. But we stick with the energy um, aspect mm. of this. So, so there's a technology there that takes hydrogen from any source and can turn it into ammonia. 
Um, ammonia is a gas um, at room temperature and pressure, but it's relatively easily liquefied, um, even more so than, much more so than um, than LPG uh, and CNG. So it's and and it's a very common material today because of its use in fertilizers and even refrigeration. You know, you, in any time you walk into a, um, a supermarket, a large supermarket, or any other um, place where there's a lot of refrigeration equipment, it's probably running on ammonia as the refrigerant. So it's all around us. Um, it's it's not a particularly um, pleasant gas. We all know the smell of ammonia. And one of the good things about it is you can smell it to detect it at a level that is far lower than its its toxicity. So if you smell ammonia, and there's plenty of time to to deal with why, where is that smell coming from before it becomes a dangerous material, toxicity wise. Um, so the point about ammonia is that it is much more easily moved around in, in pipelines. There are, are, are bulk carrier tanker type uh, ships already very much on the high seas today, shipping ammonia around all over the world. Um, so it's, it is a, a form of, of, um, of hydrogen, if you like, um, that you can easily move around. So, so far what we've said is if you've got green hydrogen and you've got a Haber-Bosch, plant the, the big chemical plant where this is this all happens you can make ammonia this is already true one of our australian um Haber-Bosch plants is in the far northwest um, of western australia in a place called karatha where if you ask why is it there uh, making ammonia mostly for fertilizers it, it's there because there's also a lot of natural gas there which is mm. where the black hydrogen currently comes yeah, from okay yeah. Anyway, it's relatively simple in concept to think of turning that into green hydrogen, therefore green ammonia, and putting it on 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 ships and pipelines as we currently do, and mm. taking it to market in a much more effective uh, manner of hydrogen transport and storage. Correct. Much more efficient. Uh, much lower energy cost, etc., uh, etc. Et um, so then. Then we've shifted, then we sort of moved, moved along, if you like, in our, in our concept and said, all right, well, now, okay, so we can move ammonia to Tokyo or to Seoul. Um, what do you do with it when you get there? Mm. Um, so, so then emerging from this in, rapidly in the last few years has been um, a, a number of, of, of technologies for using ammonia in very productive ways. So, mm -hmm. so just a couple to mention. Um, so CSIRO um, here in Melbourne, some five years or so ago, demonstrated a technology for effectively cracking the ammonia uh, very, in a very simple device that could easily be fitted within a vehicle into hydrogen and nitrogen. So reversing the reaction that was mm. carried out in the wash plant. So you get your hydrogen back, um, at not, not huge energy cost, and importantly, the nitrogen is re-emitted, but is N2 as an inert, as an inert non-greenhouse um, gas. Correct. Um, so it, it goes back into, a, into the atmosphere from whence it came, and therefore you can sort of see a nice circularity <laughs> of the nitrogen mm. there. And um, then the hydrogen can be used in our Toyota Mirai or, or other, other vehicle or in any other way that you want to use hydrogen. Mm. Um, so hydrogen is a, a sort of a clean-burning uh, fuel, um, that you could use a little bit like natural gas. So in many senses, um, think of uh, hydrogen in this regard as being like using natural gas. Okay, so, and, so ammonia, or green hydrogen and nitrogen, Haber-Bosch to ammonia, then ammonia back to nitrogen and <clears throat> hydrogen, which can then be burnt again. So you do, you've obviously got a lot of, you've got a lot of steps there. And so that hydrogen that is then eventually 
utilized to burn that burn in the car at the at say the final step have you lost you, you you've obviously lost some energy along that or, or have you that's the thing you haven't lost any energy along that way i really, really have it's it's one of the sad um effectively rules of of mm. um of chemistry it's called the second law of thermodynamics but it more or less says whenever you whatever you do as a as a process in chemistry to to get it to 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 go to reasonably to a a, a, a complete sort of transformation you you're always almost always going to lose some energy as heat that's sort of just required yeah. in the world mm-hmm. um so with all of those steps you're quite right uh there's energy uh, lost so that the the um hydrogen energy in versus the hydrogen energy out and all of that is is probably well below 50 percent um depending on, on on some of the steps uh, so really uh, yeah almost, you can kind of summarize renewables as being well considered in comparison to what we're sort of used to is really being inefficient and losing making us lose power and lose electricity um and lose energy as we as we use them so we're working and this is the thing with renewables i think which is which has made them so hard and why we haven't just been able to just be like oh we we've got renewable tech like say 20 years ago we've we've got this renewable tech and we sort of knew about it and why why haven't we just done it? Like, let's just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Stop being so committed to coal and to natural gas. And like, can't you see that the world is um, blowing up, you know, that it's warming? It's like, well, we've kind of got to work against the tide here um, a little bit with these processes whilst making sure that you keep your energy and that it doesn't shoot up in price and that you can still live the life that you you would like to live it's 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 what it's kind of eventually all often boils down to that point there yeah so so the key to to resolving that uh what looks like a conundrum there is a there is a a, a way that that resolves itself which is the increasingly cheap um cost of energy in the first place so <clears throat> so those lots of energy what not desirable although to some extent they are inevitable in chemistry. We did a lot of chemistry steps in what I just described. And so one strategy is to, is to remove some of those. And I'll explain kind of what's happening there to, to do so in a moment. But the other thing, of course, the, the kind of good news in this is that, well, the, the significance of the loss of energy becomes less and less as the cost of the energy in the first place becomes less and less. And that is, mm-hmm. that is you know, a, a huge trend in the world today is that these big solar and wind farms are are producing at, at increasingly less and less and to put that in perspective you know most of us in in australia are paying some something in the order of around 20 to 25 cents per kilowatt hour for our electricity into the house, into the house um, there are um, big solar and wind farms around the world that are um, producing renewable uh, energy at one cent a kilowatt hour Mm. one cent right now that's quite radical and quite new um you know some some years ago even 10 cents would have been considered radical but now it's sort of headed towards one cent a kilowatt hour and that is that's pretty massive Um, Mm. it's um, severely it's a severe um decrease in price isn't it that's right but it just shows you what's possible so we've got to be we've got to be careful to we're not careful we've got to be very much keeping an eye on well if if energy can be produced that that cheaply then kind of what does that mean for the rest of our of 
our thinking, you see. Mm. So, so then to come back to kind of where is the ammonia story kind of evolving given the, given the cost and all of those steps that we just went through. Mm. Um, there are possibly two dimension. Um, one is first and foremost about the idea, well, you don't need to turn it back into, into electricity to use it, sorry, into, into hydrogen or even into electricity to use it. You can actually use ammonia as a fuel. Mm. Now that's removed. I just removed um, effectively uh, two of the steps in. Uh, mm -hmm. Which and and that step um, of cracking, I imagine, involves um, a catalyst and uh, a rare some a rare element. Um, rare element, and and as always, <laughs> a certain amount of of loss of of energy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's also the if we're wanting electricity, is also the fuel cell has sort of disappeared out of that picture as well. Mm. So so um, so you can use ammonia directly as a fuel in a relatively traditional in engine, mm -hmm. and this is not mm -hmm. a new idea. This, in fact, there were buses in Belgium famously running on on ammonia in the Second World War because they, because uh, ordinary ordinary diesel oil was was in short supply and it wasn't. Um, a, a very significant um, change to the engines to to change them to run on ammonia, um, and there was a fleet of a hundred buses that ran around uh, around Belgium in that part of the, the world. And that that engine technology has never really kind of disappeared. There are some some enthusiasts almost have continued to mm. to develop and uh, and sort of demonstrate uh, cars and, and vehicles running on on ammonia from a, from a tank of ammonia that uh, looks like a an LPG tank in the back of the car. Um, so, so, uh, so, so in the last five years or so that the, the focus then on, on engine technology running on, on ammonia has just increased radically to the point now where we can confidently say that, that, um, big marine engines running, you know, the, 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 um, shipping technology of, of, of the world is, is rapidly focusing on, on ammonia as the shipping fuel of the future. And there's more to, more I can say as to why that's been the, the chosen that's, fuel. That's that's interesting. Maybe we can just touch on that for a second because I haven't heard about that really much at all. And maybe that's just because that's not um, hitting my information. Notice my my camera's just um, turned off there for a second. I'll get that going again in a sec. Um, that hasn't, for whatever reason, that hasn't sort of pervaded my information space. And maybe there's plenty of reasons for that, but it's not. Um, ammonia as a direct fuel source like you're talking about there it's not in it's not in the public in the public's eye really as far as i know it's very much solar and now hydrogen and perhaps it, you can't have well it seems that maybe there's there's something going on here where you can't have too many different conflicting fuel sources and things all going at the same time particularly in the public eye because it's like oh well, what what is that? How does that work? But what about this thing over here? And and where do you divert your resources and your interest to? You can't have everything all at once, right? You have to um, you have to pick your goals and you have to choose your sacrifices. So, what you're saying though is that even though ammonia is perhaps in the more in the more commonplace sense, not being um, put forward as much or it's not being utilized in these in industry it is actually starting to take hold that's right and i, I think the reason that it, it it might not be 
uh, shall we say, sort of uh, hugely part of the, the big discussion in Australia is that um, the, 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 the nature of the discussion is very much regional, regional in, in the global sense. Um, as we were saying before, probably Australia, the, the big discussion is just how far can we, can we go in renewable electricity in Australia to satisfy almost all of our needs. Ammonium and hydrogen might never be a, a big part of the picture for, for you and I, mm. domestically, so to speak. Um, but if you if you jump then to the, sort of the other end of the scale, um, well, one of the one of the um, uh, uh, aspects of the modern world that is truly global is shipping, and it's run by a, an organisation I think that's more or less under the banner of the UN um, called the International Maritime Organisation, the IMO, and they they mandated that international shipping had to be um, uh, had to reduce its carbon footprint by 2050 to 50% of what it was in, I think it might have been 2005, let's, uh, that, that year might not be quite right, but it was approximately that, that part of time. Now, th that doesn't sound like a very big reduction, but it actually is huge because the, 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 the growth of, of international shipping is, is such that if you, if you sort of ask what will be this, the state of international shipping in 2050, and what fraction of it then would be half of 2005? The answer is um, most of shipping in, in 2050 is going to have to be um, carbon free, carbon neutral. Right? And, That's what and carbon, carbon neutral, meaning that it is relying on um, green. If it's relying on ammonia, then that's going to be ammonia that's produced through green green hydrogen yeah. so 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 in, in a sense imo didn't say didn't have a preference for what mode of propulsion we're, we're talking really about what drives the ships right uh, mm -hmm. um what mode of propulsion uh, and wind by the way is also you know sails literally is 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 not to be ignored here yeah that old technology that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, but they basically said it had to happen and the imo has a certain a certain uh, you know um, teeth behind it so so then the shipping industry um, broadly including the port authorities of all then started to look very hard at, uh, at what is the best answer hydrogen was quickly ruled out um, because just just storing that amount of hydrogen in some of the big ports of the world including some of australia's big ports um, including Melbourne, um, including Singapore uh, as one of the biggest in the world, um, just not not feasible to to store and move around that amount of mm -hmm. hydrogen um, that would replace current use of, of oil. Uh, most ships run on a very heavy oil that's called bunker fuel, but it's just very, very heavy oil. Um, so, so then in casting around electricity, yes, sure, some electric ferries and whatnot, but for major trans-oceanic um, shipping, uh, it's got to be a, some very concentrated fuel. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> you, you quickly come back to, to ammonia as being about the only real option. Um, and fortunately, you can run, you know, big um, marine uh, ship engines on ammonia. That the, the shift in technology from a tradi traditional uh, engine in a in a ship isn't so very great. Um, nor is the fuel tank technology so very great to run the ship. Um, so the that transition of technology is happening quietly in the ship. Yeah, it's, okay. it's happening behind, kind of happening behind closed doors in that sense, in the public eye. The not so much closed doors, but it's it's, it's closed it's, doors it's to the a, public. You're to, to the, the public, average person. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you if you search it on the internet, you'll find some quite 
mm. loud announcements from big shipbuilders and uh, and marine uh, engine builders and so on um, uh, about what they're doing. But it's not something that most of us think very much about. So it's not it's not newspaper headline stuff. Um, yeah. But that's, that's happening. And then the other very notable, I think, development is um, is in is in generating electricity from ammonia directly um no fuel cell um no hydrogen cracker um so mitsubishi um is one of the big heavy engineering companies in japan that produces the big gas turbines that um, are used um all over the world as part of the electricity supply at the moment traditional gas turbine gas turbine is kind of like a big jet engine you know sort of the principles are roughly the same but a gas turbine runs on natural gas produces it's a a big machine um but it's it's fundamentally it's an engine and produces electricity from the spinning of the turbines um so they have have started to produce an ammonia fed Mm. gas turbine interesting Um, so relatively kind of familiar thing in a very familiar setting in the grid, uh, which is the gas turbine, different fuel, right? Mm. And uh, therefore, whether it's in, in Japan or maybe even back here in Australia as our, as our peaking, so at six o'clock at night, some, some parts of the, of the states will be turning on their, their big gas turbines to, and running on ammonia, which is easily produced and stored locally in the tank next door. Mm. Um, so, so that really kind of completes the picture as to you know, there's two very big applications of, of energy, electricity for domestic use and at, at scale and, uh, and shipping that are rapidly turning to ammonia as the, as the fuel of the future. Yeah, right. Okay. So then that, well, that brings in these, let's tie that together. So effectively, we look like we've got three, um, we've kind of got three routes that we can go down that maybe aren't necessarily mutually exclusive or maybe do end up pushing each other out in, in the section we've got. And we can, maybe we just summarize this as, as, as we, in terms of, of economies. So like the solar economy, the hydrogen economy, and then the nitrogen um, economy um, in terms of how each, even though nitrogen is very much sort of with, goes hand in hand with hydrogen um, in this sense, or hydrogen has to go hand in hand in nitrogen. Where do you see the direction of energy going into the future in these technologies and which proving to be most most dominant or most effective or has the most potential to sort of solve some of our, um, our, our sustainable energy needs? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great, a great discussion point, isn't it? And I, I might, I might suggest the the phrase um um electric economy um, okay to rather than solar economy remember effectively solar and wind are the, the the big sources of all of this energy in the first place um and that i don't think is going to change i think that uh um it's it's how to use that energy that we're we're otherwise talking about so we have we have the electric economy that's directly you know, directly in wires into whatever it is we want to do, um, or it's it's using it to make hydrogen, or it's using it to make ammonia, um, and and I think as I was saying before, I think in Australia, I think we'll we'll progressively go more and more than we already are, which is substantial already. Electric, so electric vehicles will will ultimately be the the, the probably the car of choice here. Um, <laughs> um, but electric in, vehicles utilizing 
utilizing say lithium ion batteries or just or hydrogen hydrogen fuel cells or I, I, whatever i i think i think you know rooftop solar and uh, and all you know um, big batteries and so on will all become you know whether it's in our own homes or whether it's in uh, it's at the um, uh, in in big battery farms as part of the overall infrastructure i think that that will rapidly it's it's happening already um you know the the um, build-up of of renewables installations in australia is happening at a at a at a, at a huge rate at the moment um but the, the cars will still be will still be running on lithium-ion batteries for sure and um and i think the, the the only barrier there at the moment is that they're just a bit more expensive and there's a bit of range anxiety which is more and more than anything related to the fact that we don't have a lot of charging stations already mm. in place so the, if we think the five to ten year time frame i think in five years time electric cars are becoming very very common um, in terms of new car sales um but then if we if we ask um, what about other parts of the world and what about export opportunities for australia then we're we're talking about the the jostling if you like for hydrogen um and ammonia um mostly at end use in other words uh, how, how the ammonia is, is ultimately produced is, is a matter for the producer. So that's just kind of a, the Australian, mm -hmm. it's coming from Australia. It's kind of well, what's the best, uh, most inexpensive way to do it and ship it in Australia. Um, but at the end use, then it'll be a jostling for, for technologies between say the hydrogen car or the ammonia car. Um, and mm -hmm. is it an ammonia truck or in train or in bus? So the heavy transport, um, or is it a is it a hydrogen vehicle? Um, and I, I have a if you start with the ships as being part, you know, effectively the the heaviest transport of all, and mm. reckon note that they've gone ammonia, and start to kind of work backwards towards smaller and smaller scale, and then <coughs> and including um, uh, turbines, uh, electricity producing turbines. I think you you sort of see ammonia. Kind of coming in from the the left field which is the heavy transport end the heavy end mm. um starting to to be the predominant source of energy um presuming it's available at reasonable cost of course um and that it doesn't have its it's not overtly it doesn't have overt risks um with with its with transportation and storage and and use as well that, that's true, and that's that's possibly why you know the probably true, despite the issues with lithium-ion batteries and and uh, uh, exploding in cars that we've talked about. But probably the safest of all technologies that none of them are safe completely uh, mm. that we just talked about. But let's remember that that um, uh, fuel, oil, kerosene, diesel, and and petrol aren't totally safe either, either chemically or or fire hazard. They're not. Mm. They're not. They're not completely safe. We're just very used to them. That's we're very used to them, right? It's a relative thing, you see. So I could see electric um, sort of dominating in in at the domestic level, um, because cause it is intrinsically the safest of all and probably the easiest to distribute and pay for. Um, but at the at the, the 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 heavy and professional technical end, ammonia, and then you know those will sort of move in from left and right. Um, field and then the question is what is what, you know wh wh where is that point in the middle where other technologies um, you know have well that's interesting that's very interesting to, to hear play. actually um, this idea because it's you, that's sort of laying you're, you're laying down the your confidence there in ammonia being a technology of a fuel source of the 
of the future and it's really that's not really something that's just talked about at all and i'm sure it's going to take some people by surprise when suddenly the prospect of oh an ammonia my car i can get a car with and that i fill up with ammonia with fertilizer you know something you know um along those lines will be quite novel and interesting and we'll have of course like all these new techs will be blasted with criticism and this and that saying why it's no good or and then and then why it is good too so it'll be very interesting to see that landscape shift over the next as you're saying over this next say decade and perhaps going forward how these two come together and converge absolutely lucian at that point is 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 probably quite appropriately appropriate for me ethically to 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 declare a conflict of interest i think that's that's always the right thing to do in a discussion like this um, when one is making predictions yeah, um, yeah. so, yeah, so I, I i i'll declare to anybody who's listening that i have a conflict of interest in the sense that um that uh, in addition to doing um, uh, some quite cutting edge research in the, in the university on on the ammonia topic, um, some of that work has got to the point where we have spun it out recently into a company, um, a company mm. called Jupyterionics. Um, what was and, that? Sorry, uh, say again. Jupiter. Jupiter. Ionics. Jupiter. Jupiter Ionics. Oh, cool. Planet. Very cool. Uh, if, uh, anybody who's thinking, well, what on earth has that got to do with 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 ammonia? And the answer is, uh, this is sort of a, a bit of a tricky thing to know. Um, that, and, and I'm not the only tricky that's involved here, by the way. Um, that um, uh, the atmosphere of Jupiter is substantially ammonia. Mm, okay. Mm. So it's, uh, it, it's a common chemical in the interstellar sense. So yeah, um, yeah, fascinating. So. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a, a shareholder, obviously, in that uh, and founder of that company. So I do have a mm. um, uh, a uh, vested a interest in, in, that, in that vision, in making it uh, sound good and making it be good. But you're also, like you said, you do the cutting ed- edge research, so you're on the forefront of the pioneer, the you're pioneering this technology, and you know you really know what's going on in this space too. So you sort of you have a leg to stand on when you um, talking about its viability. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's that's very interesting, I, and I hope that I hope that goes well. It'll be Jupiter Ionics. Interesting to see um, um, what comes out of that. And so that, and that, I'm not sure how much you're willing to give away about it, but that you're essentially, essentially they're privatizing the process of developing new ammonia-related tech. Is that or processes? Yeah. I can certainly talk um, a little bit about what Jupiter's uh, technology is and, and, and where it's headed with it. Mm. So if, if we go back to the, um, uh, the, the question that we discussed at some length here of, of how do we improve the whole, the whole uh, ammonia technology pipeline, so to speak, that we talked about where we, end, we started off with electricity and we ended up with, well, with energy at the wheels or in the home. Um, uh, and how do we improve the overall energy efficiency um, of that overall pipeline, so to speak? Um, so one of the one of the aspects of that that uh, deserves um, attention um, is right back at the chemistry aspect of this. Is we we talked about how ammonia is made in this hundred year old um, process called the Haber Bosch process, which is big chemical plant stuff, um, hydrogen from some source, and nitrogen in 
huge plant, high temperatures, high pressures, and then ammonia out. And the, the energy efficiency of that step alone, uh, you, you put, mm. you put um, uh, hydrogen when, and, and evaluate as chemists do the amount of energy that's effectively contained in that hydrogen in and then take ammonia out and then evaluate how much energy is in that literally by burning them both. That's how it's done, it's very simple. Um, and um, on a very good day, you might get 60% energy efficiency. So 60% of 60% coming out of what you put in. Mm-hmm. Um, in more average terms, it's probably more like 50%. Um, so that's already a, a big factor in our energy loss, shall we say, um, in this overall picture. So removing that step and simplifying it is is part of the uh, part of the goal. Now, now what we what we've learned how to do this is this is now cutting edge science of the last five years or so, um, of which our group has um, has you know been I think sort of fortunate to be to be uh, able to 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 be at the forefront of um, that we. We completely remove the Haber-Bosch from this process. It is not part of our process. What we do is that sounds like no, in uh, you know that's not an insignificant thing as well, considering how significant the Haber-Bosch process is itself. World, correct, absolutely correct, right? So what we do is um, we go back up up the up the process, if you like, to the to the water electrolyzer, which is producing our green hydrogen, if you remember, but that was that was where we started with in terms of, of trying to make ammonia in our previous discussion. So so we go to that uh, that water electrolyzer and we tweak it. We tweak it in such a way that it's no longer making hydrogen. It's taking in nitrogen from the air, relatively simple matter to organize that um and the electricity is not producing hydrogen is producing ammonia directly interesting i see so we've we've removed one huge part of the process which is both energy consuming and quite capital expensive you know costly to build that plant and big stuff um and we're producing very small devices you know if you um if you you look at some of the pictures of our devices they're they're laboratory small um which can take in electricity it takes in water, it takes in nitrogen, and it produces ammonia in this in what is otherwise an electrolysis cell. So the process is not mysterious. It's it's just a um, a tweaked version of the original water electrolysis cell. It's quite exciting. And is that is that on? Um, I'm assuming that's on a relatively small scale. Um, at this yes, point indeed. In time. Our, our laboratory scale, you know, produces, you know, fractions of a gram at a time. You know, we might run, mm. we run experiments for up to a week, but, uh, and produce a, uh, a few grams um, in quite small devices. Uh, but that's more than enough for us to, uh, to, to really sort of very, very uh, accurately quantify and, uh, and compare our, um, our productivity with, with, with mm. how much electricity. To assess is the, the sort of the base um, effect uh, viability of the process that that it works works how you want it to work. That's right, and there's I mean a lot of a lot of sort of tweaking of, of how we do it and uh, and the, the the detail if you like over the over the recent years. Um, and, and one of our metrics, if you like, here one of the first metrics is 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 to try to get to the point where all of the electricity that we put in according to a very famous um, law of, of electrochemistry, effectively, uh, called Faraday's law. So Michael Faraday, mm-hmm. 200 years ago, was uh, sort of proved this, this law that one electron in should produce one, one step of, of noticeable chemistry. In, in the case of ammonia, it takes, if you take one 
nitrogen molecule, that's two, two, two atoms of N in one molecule. If you take one of those, um, it should take precisely six electrons to make two, two amounts of ammonia, mm -hmm. two, two atoms of ammonia, two molecules of ammonia, precisely six, no more, no less, right? If, mm -hmm. if, there's some, if, if it's more, there's something very wrong in our measurements. If it's less, there's probably something else going on as well, which is not good. We don't want to lose electricity into something else. Um, so Faraday's law is pretty absolute uh, in this regard, right? Uh, if, if it's not 100%, the consequences are um, to, be, to be figured out. So, so reaching 100% uh, is, is a major goal. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that in quite recent times, we haven't, uh, we haven't actually published the details yet, but we have managed to get very, very close to 100% Faraday efficiency, meaning every electron in quantifiably produces the ammonia that it should uh, out. Um, so Great. that's kind of where we're at in the process. Very, uh, that's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure that sounds like it's it's going to have some role to play going into the going into the future with what we've just been talking about with ammonium, with ammonia. Sorry. Um, so we've been going for quite a while now, and now there there was one. I have one last particularly pointed question here um, to ask, just to sort of wrap things up a little bit, and it's quite relevant to Australia and. <clears throat> what we were inferring earlier about talking about now, which is the cost of, oh, my camera's just gone again, the cost of electricity. And so that question is, can Mike Cannon-Brooks buy AGL and close Australia's power stations and not jump electricity prices through the roof, disproportionately affecting certain demographics within Australia? Um, I, absolutely, he can uh, achieve that goal. Uh, I think um, it's important to, re to recognize that the time scale is relatively long, so there's plenty of time for this for uh, this plan to unfold. 2030, I think, was the was the time scale, and the plan also involves significant further investment in the renewables that are going to replace the. Um, the the capacity that's going to be shut down um the coal-fired capacity is going to be shut down at that moment in time um and th that that renewables um, um investment uh, that was part of the plan uh, would inevitably involve uh, some storage batteries um some big storage batteries the technology of all of this of course as we've said before is developing rapidly and and if i can just remind everybody of one of one sort of key key set of numbers is that while to, so the, the the price that you're talking about is is for our our an average around Australia sort of something in the order of twenty to twenty five cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. Um, renewables can be produced today at one cent. One cent. One cent. Right. One <laughs> cent. Right. So so the the renewables that uh, that Mike Cannon Brooks is planning to put in could probably be produced uh, with a bit of storage, maybe slightly more expensive than that. But that is still massively cheaper than than the current cost of of coal fired electricity in Australia. Mm. Um, if you if you ask, well, what is that typically? It's um it it comes and goes a bit. Um, it's, it's sort of around <coughs> about four cents. Um, is the mm. is the actual base production price of electricity in in it depends on the state it depends on the coal etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm talking very rough round numbers here but the point is um they there is no reason at all in fact it's already true that renewables can be produced much more cheaply than coal-fired electricity mm. 
therefore with sufficient investment and and uh, and uh, a good a good um, number of for investment i think it it was i think it was 8 billion but i can't remember exactly what the uh, what the further investment not just to buy the company but the further investment that was going to be committed in this plan to installing replacement renewables um, probably in the same part of the country as where the power plant is um, uh, to to replace it and I would actually predict that by 2030 the cost will be lower lower than the cost of what it's been replacing for well, there you go that's quite an optimistic outlook that you've just um, put there and then that well that raises the question is of why isn't why hasn't it been done yet or why why are we not doing that <laughs> why isn't that happening but hopefully as you're saying as you it will um yeah. and it is and it's yeah. currently in the process so go on mike cannon save <laughs> save our save our electricity prices and uh, and save our carbon emissions save the world um, save the world from a, a climate uh, a, a slow moving train wreck of a climate catastrophe exactly well, Douglas, that's been very informative. Um, thank you very much for your time and for blessing us with your expertise and knowledge in this area. Um, I think we, we covered just about well, a lot of what there is to cover, I think, in the realm of renewable tech currently, um, what's relevant at the moment and what's happening and what we can look forward to in the future, particularly with the advances in ammonia ammonia tech which seems particularly exciting and um, particularly relevant hand in hand with hydrogen uh, you're most welcome and uh, I look forward to, to chatting with you on some other topic in the future yes and we, um, we 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 have something planned i think a part a part two for this which talking about perhaps the philosophy of science more more broadly and maybe the function that universities serve or should serve and are not maybe serving who knows we can get into that but anyway thanks i think we'll leave it there and um i'll i'll talk to you next time thanks douglas thank you Lucy.